The following is a message by Sean Taylor, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Yes. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are here again. My daddy is not here. But I will still say, because eventually he's going to come on and look at the recording. And so I want to specifically say Happy Father's Day to my father. I am one very privileged and fortunate young man. It's something I had said to him when I was getting married, that honestly he... He was a hard act to follow, in my opinion. Um, my father, very present. He was someone who had a very calm demeanor. You know, it was only my older age that my mother could confirm that Yemen, them used to argue. I wasn't too sure. I guess, you know, they, they locked the door and they were very quiet. But I mean, at its core, though, what, what I always just appreciate about my father was just his, he, he, he was, ve- it was very clear what his priorities were. And he made that very clear that family was crucial and important. And so I just want to say happy Father's Day to my father. Thank you for modeling what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to be a father and a husband. That is a gift that is, again, something I will forever cherish. So this morning, surprise to surprise, I'm not having a Father's Day message. I don't have one prepared. I must confess, what we are doing is we're going to continue in the book of Mark journey in the following the sun. That's what we're going to be doing. But I guess there's father there, right? Because we are following the son. And, you know, there's a father. No, I'm trying. I'm trying to, to do a connection. But, again, it's something we need. It's something that the fathers will need. It's something that everyone will need. Because as we journey to follow the son, as we see how Christ continues to be the one who submits to his father, who renders to his father what is due to the father. Again, it's something that is going to be instructive for us. So I'm going to ask you, whether you're at home or here, to turn in your Bibles to Mark 12, verses 13 to 17. So we're going to be looking at Mark 12, 13 to 17. And it reads, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Lord, as we read this passage, as we come to face its truths, we ask that you will open up our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, and that the entrance of your word will bring light and understanding to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Palms are sweaty. Knees weak. Arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. All right. If you were around in the early 2000s, you may have recognized those lines. Those lines are the theme song for a movie called 8 Mile. And the song depicts a battle rapper who, under the pressure of contemplating his opponents, throwing witty and well-written, this is his way, he's nervous. He's ready to lose his cool, and he chokes, as the urban term is called, before he performs. You see, in that boxing match of words, it's very easy to buckle under the pressure when standing before an opponent. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been under that same type of pressure before? Uh, maybe for some of you, I know Darren maybe has probably been in a rap battle, but most of us haven't been in rap battles before. So maybe you recognize that sort of pressure when you were at school and you had an oral, an oral exam, and you had to stand before teachers and a panel of people and they throw in all these questions on the fly and you have to get ready and give an answer you remember those times or or maybe you feel that pressure right you feel that pressure doing a job interview you're sitting down getting ready you you make sure that you you have all your questions ready and you have all the background knowledge in your head but then you come and you see that stone face interviewer and then they are ready with their gotcha questions, right? You know those questions that when you get asked it, you feel like you're backed in a corner? So tell me, um, what is your greatest weakness? Or, or describe a time where you failed before. Now, you see, regardless of your answer to those questions, it's very hard to avoid exposing some sort of gap in your ability or character. Because honestly, if, you, if your answer is a bit too vague, more than likely somebody said to themselves, okay, this guy's not being very honest. He's not quite aware of himself. Or if you get way too detailed, they might say, hmm, you know, they're giving me some reasons for me to rethink hiring this person. Now, maybe a more sinister type of opposition. You know, when you see the tit-for-tat discussions that can happen in the world of journalism, especially if you watch some interviews with politicians where they ask these very leading questions, all of it is geared to basically entrap. 
the politician, right? I mean, Im imagine this. Imagine a journalist uh, going to the prime minister. The prime minister, he is about to go to the Olympics, or he's at the Olympics. He's at the Olympics, and he's watching Shelley and Fraser about to run a very historic 100-meter race, and you know we feel like, yeah, man, Shelley's the fastest woman in the world right now. It's going to be great. Everybody's excited. And then we have a journalist come and say, Prime Minister, how do you feel about you being here laughing and celebrating when 50,000 children go to bed hungry at night in Jamaica? Imagine a question like that. I mean, how do you answer a question like that? I mean, no matter where he goes, the response really is kind of led to make him look a ways. It could damage his reputation and certainly it's going to give a very sensational response that you're going to find on news. It's in a passage that we just read this morning. Jesus is in a very similar situation. He's about to have a verbal scuffle, as it were, with some opponents. And they are ready with their gotcha question because they want to trap Jesus. They've crafted it in a way, in their minds at, at least, where they're thinking, listen, no matter what Jesus responds, this is going to discredit him. It's going to make people question his cause. It's going to let people question his character, his integrity, or his reputation. But you see, this confrontation between Jesus and the leaders of society is but one of five confrontations that, you know, scholars believe actually happened within a day. And the tools that these opponents are going to use is their understanding of God's law in an attempt to trip up Jesus. But realize something, this is not a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. You see, the snare they will set will only confirm how outclassed and how outmatched they are against Jesus. You see, Jesus is the living and breathing word of God. Their interpretative trick questions versus wisdom personified will only expose the hardness of their hearts. It's Jesus. We're going to see Jesus continuously go toe-to-toe -to -toe with opponents. He's going to be dodging their cheap shots and ending every round with a devastating counter-blow. It's the kind of response that will continue to pull at all the hairs and bring them to a place of awe. And Jesus is not going to miss any opportunity to open up the minds of his listeners to his countercultural way of discipleship. You see, despite the clout and the authority that the religious teachers had or the power that the government leaders thought, this is one of the things that Jesus is going to remind us in this text. How our greatest obligation is owed to the one whose image we bear. As we examine this dispute between Jesus and his opponents, we're going to walk through this text in two rounds. And so in verse 13 to 14, we're going to call that round one, the cheap shot. And then verses 15 to 7, round two, the counter blow. Our greatest obligation is owed to the one whose image we bear. And you see that greatest obligation, saints, it's going to inform every area of our lives. You see, there's going to be times where 
we are faced with what seems to be very impossible scenarios and decisions as we journey as his disciples. But stand in amazement. I hope that at the end of the day, we will stand in amazement and awe of the God of wisdom, the God of authority, whose promise is that he himself will be with us when we are in that similar place where we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do in a particular situation. And it is that God who will empower us to walk out his will. And so let us look at that. Let's look at verses 13 to 14, round one, the cheap shot. Fight. Verse 13 introduces us today to the challengers. And here's a challenger. They have their theme music coming in, and they're coming in, getting ready. And it says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. You see, this fight at first glance postures as a very unfair gang up. I mean, right now, the they more than likely refers to the same chief priests and the scribes and elders of the Sanhedrin that Jesus would have previously clashed with in the temple. You remember when he came into the temple and him, him tear up everything, right? And people say, yo, but by what authority do you feel that you're doing this? So coming out of that, they seem to have sent... Some people to come and deal with Jesus. So for the next showdown, they're hoping to do a double team with, very, with two unlikely teammates, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, listen, this pairing alone would be very alarming to the original readers. Because if you were to go and check the stats about these guys, they're, very, they're worlds apart. This is an unholy alliance at best. And so here's a quick roundup. The Pharisees. These guys, they were considered the most expert and accurate expositors of Jewish law. You see, unlike the Sadducees that seem to have had the air of the wealthy and the ruling class, you see, the Pharisees, they were respected among the common people. You see, their influence over people to would have been maintained as people looked up to them and said yeah these are the guys that interpret the law yeah man, th- th- these are the guys that we can follow and then now contrast that with the herodians the herodians they were jews themselves they were jews but they were very much influenced by greek culture you see they were actually supporters of the dynasty of herods and so, you remember, when you think back, the Herod, the Herod the Greats, and Herod, these guys who would do things, very infamous things, lopping off heads of um, John the Baptist, deciding, yo, what, Jesus coming, we hear about that? Yo, let's, let's go and look for all the children, and let's sort them out. These guys, they were a part of the dynasty. They were looking to this dynasty to fulfill the rulership of the Jews. And they were actually pro-Roman in their stance as it relates to the laws. And so this is what we have. We have the very staunch conservative Pharisees. If you were to compare this to even America, if you remember how America's setup is, imagine conservative far-right, this is my right, 
and liberal light left wing. So that's what we have. Very conservative, very, very liberal, deciding to come together and agree on something. Them going to link arms. Again, these guys are sworn enemies. Typically, people like this, them not agree upon nothing. Right? Deadlock if you're trying to make a decision. But right now, there's one thing them can agree on. You see this Jesus? Yeah, he's bad news. He's bad news. You see, for the Pharisees, Jesus stands against their way of trying to use religious dogma to control the people. And for the Herodians, Jesus threatened in their mind the political reign that they had over the nation that they fought so hard to control. So right now, really what you said these guys saying is, listen, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And let's put our differences aside right now and let's deal with the bigger enemy. You see, even when you just look at that whole setup, it's, it's really something that is instructive. You see, disciples of Christ, don't be surprised when you find yourself in opposition to all kinds of people. You see, there's a lot in our journeying with Christ that is going to call us to believe, do, and say a lot of things that is going to find offense with all sorts of worldviews. You see, this is, this is the thing that probably didn't tell you, eh? In Christianity, you're going to find a lot of enemies. Because even if it's on one side you want to say, yeah, man, I think people would vibe with this. You know, Christ brings some things that, again, is just countercultural. And so when you look at worldviews around moralism, you know, naturalism, pantheism, postmodernism, pluralism, Islam, you see, all of those different worldviews, when you check them out, their worlds apart. They have a whole lot of different beliefs. But what you will find, one thing they can agree with, you see, Christianity and Christ and his exclusivity and his claims, that's a problem. That's somewhere they can all agree. And you see, Mark tells us at the very outset that these strange bedfellows are up to no good. You see, their intentions, as Mark says, is to trap Jesus in his talk. And so verse 14 actually elaborates some more on this scheme. They want to get Jesus off balance, right? They want to use some fake flattery before them unleash them cheap shot. And so look at verse 14. Again, I, I just imagine this is how they said it. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. And, and you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. These guys, they're going to call Jesus teacher. Knowing very well that they are stubborn and insolent students. You see, they will affirm that Jesus is true while very much rejecting the truth that he possesses. You know, they are going to pay lip service to the fact that he doesn't follow the crowds. Him don't watch what people want to say. But instead, he teaches the way of God. Now, here's one thing I want you to notice. Their, their assessment of Jesus. Wasn't that right? Yeah, of this was right. 
They were spot on. You know, if they were doing a theological exam on who Jesus is, we'd have to give them some marks on the paper, right? No, yes, that's the thing. Watching the fight tactics of the Pharisees and Herodians is a reminder, though, to us that, listen, your ability to affirm true things about Jesus doesn't make you one of his followers. You see, many people are very willing to declare truths about Jesus, but have ill intent. So friends, take no comfort if you can recite some Bible verses and lay out orthodox doctrine. Yet you live very contrary to the beliefs. It's a true discipleship as we have been following this whole time with Mark is being a person who, as First Timothy says, keeps a close watch on how you live and on how you teach. And so this is what they're doing. All this wonderful flattery. So after they throw the flurry of flatteries, this is when they drop the question. Here's the question. Verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? I mean, it seems like a simple enough question, right? But uh, let, me, let me just point out something to you. Try and think about some of the hot-button topics of our days that you could probably throw out. I mean, here, here's some. What are your views on gender equality, the marginalization of women, um, and the fact that, you know, at the same time, men are not really present in university? Let's have a discussion on that. Okay, here, no. All right, uh, here, let's have a discussion on this. How should we engage the LGBTQ community? At the same time, trying to keep clear our values of scripture, but wanting to honor them, you know, they live in this world and they're here. How should the laws be treated for them? Let's have a discussion. No, let's not. We have the, the, the sermon. I know you want to start it. Maybe later. All right, should we have more taxes? On the rich. Oh, all right. Uh, what about the taxes on the poor? How should we do that? Should it be proportional? Let's discuss. Should we vote for career politicians with poor track records? Or instead, let's vote for pastors. I mean, they are believers after all. Whether or not they have the experience or track record for governance, we're not sure. Let's discuss. Listen, all of those questions, they could have varied answers. And honestly, the responses would be enough fuel to destroy a peaceful dinner party and certainly to light up your social media feed. So understand now, you see, this question about paying taxes to Caesar was more than just some hard question it was a very politically charged and even religiously charged question and let me tell you why you see in many ways you see the tax was an expression of the rule and oppression that the jewish people were subject to under roman governance you see scholars note that the tax being referred to here is more than likely something that, that they call the imperial poll tax which would eventually, by the way, be the catalyst for a number of violent revolts in history. People would revolt over this. People would die over this topic 
of paying tax to Caesar. You know, James Edwards notes this. It says, the amount required to satisfy the poll tax was a denarius, which was the average daily wage in Palestine. A denarius was a Roman silver coin bearing the semi-divine bust of Tiberius Caesar with an abbreviated Latin inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So not only was this tax a oppressive thing, and in the eyes of people, boy, this show that the Jews are now under pagan and Gentile rule, the coin itself was basically saying, Caesar is divine. I mean, we talk about it all the time, about how even in the U.S., the, the U.S. dollar says what? In God we trust. This coin says, might as well say, in Caesar we trust. Caesar is God. That's the heights of idolatry. I mean, this pagan coin was what the Jews had to be walking around with. I mean, you can imagine why this was something that a lot of Jews would have had issues with. You know, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the people saw the taxes as something that is almost the Jews rejecting Yahweh as their Lord and paying tribute instead to the rule of a mortal pagan man. So again, you see this question, though asked very simply, is something that is full with this, okay, how can we think through our understanding of divine law in the midst of this law of men? And so this is the dilemma that Jesus was faced with. If he said yes, paid it to Caesar, that would certainly upset the people. It's going to brand him a traitor to the Jews. And to respond to their question, no, do not pay taxes to Caesar. On the other hand, that's going to make him guilty of treason right now against the Roman government. So in their minds, again, this combat strategy was smart. We're catching him in the corner now. Again, this strategy is instructive to us as readers. Listen, not every question or query that comes to you is from a place of genuine interest. You see, some questions you may be asked is just only a setup to expose you and to bring criticism. And so a sign of Christian maturity is learning to discern the difference between true inquiries of the soul or snares of those whose intent is simply to have an argument with you and cause you to follow down a certain path. You see, Proverbs uses a very interesting passage where it says, Don't answer a fool in his folly, lest you be like him. And then on a, the, the verse right after says, Answer a fool in his folly, lest he think he's wise. We clearly need discernment. Because there comes a time where you need to know when to answer a question. You know, I must admit there were many times that I have wasted my keystrokes in the past answering questions online from people who truly don't want to answer. 
And it's something I want to warn us here as a generation that's very used to social media and talking and having these back and forths with people. Because maybe you're not like me, but I must confess, a lot of what fuel my going and going and answering and answering, even though I know the people not listening, is I just want to win that argument in the midst of the public square. Because social media is certainly that, right? I want to win my argument. I want people to hear. Christians are just as smart as well. Look here. And really more, I am one of those smart Christians. But again, maybe you don't have my struggle. But again, would you have discernment to know when to answer certain questions? Would you be guided by what 2 Timothy 2.25 says that in your correcting opponents, that you do it with gentleness? that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So again, let's go back to the question. Pay the tax or not? Again, at the moment, the, Jesus' opponents feel that they've won. His next words is going to seal his fate. Depending on what he says, it could destroy his standing with the people or get him in trouble with Rome. But again... Mark builds that tension and very quickly he makes it very clear that what seemed like a very unfair gang up quickly is going to turn into a haymaker of a response. And so let us look at round two. Round two, the counter blow. Verse 15 to 17, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. You see, they thought they had Jesus in the trap. But he is seen right through the games. He's not going to be impressed by their flattery. And he's very wise to their con. With very similar words, by the way, Mark mentions where Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He uses a very similar term when he says, why put me to the test? Jesus exposes their devilish plot. As Jesus has them state the inscription and say, yeah, show me whose image is here. That they possess. You see, him catch them with the first job. And what, here's the first job. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now let me show you something with that. As I mentioned before, you see this tax for Caesar was more than likely the denarius, right? And so the simple request of saying, all right, bossy, bring me a denarius. More than likely, they had it in their pouch and they took it out and they said, oh, here you go, Jesus. You see, he gets the point to the hypocrisy in their question. You see, because the, the whole idea of render is this idea of communicating payment for services received. And so Donald English points out a very insightful thing where he says, the image of Caesar on the coin represented all the benefits received from the Roman Empire. And their use of the coin signaled implicit acceptance of these. Pay up for what you gain is his point. You see, their very possession of the coin was their acceptance of the system. Them are part of the system. So while they were walking around and trying to say, 
Listen, um, this, this tax that represents this pagan thing and, and, and look at idolatry, they had that very things in their pocket. They weren't in a position where they were like, yo, we're not touch that. We're not touch that. They had it in their pocket. The very tax they wanted to know whether it was God's will is the same tax that they benefited from that caused the building of roads that they traversed on. It, it helped to build things like what was going on, the goods being sold in temples and marketplace that they were very much a part of. And so what you see here is Jesus' wisdom as he sees what they're trying to do to entrap him. His response doesn't go in favor of the Pharisees nor the Herodians. And so he even makes that very clear when he tacks on, lest anybody thinks he's taking sides. He finishes and says, render to God the things that are God's. You see, Jesus in this statement is not trying to make some distinction between two exclusive and independent spheres. He's not saying, okay, there are things that are Caesar's. Let's leave it over there. And then there are things that are God's. Let's leave it over here. You know, here is the secular space, and here is the sacred space. This is not what Jesus is saying. Look at it. You see, if the coin that bears the image of Caesar belongs to Jesus, what then does that mean for those who bear the image of God? That is what he's showing them. Whose image is there? Caesar's? Okay, sure. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. But render to God's. Who is God's? As a Jew who is very aware of the fact that all men are made in the image of God, that one would have surprised them. Wait. We never expect that answer. And that is what he did. He said all of God's creatures... So no matter what you want to think, your obligation is to Caesar or whatever. Listen, all of God's creatures have an obligation to him. All things are under the authority of God, including political affairs. And that is how he chooses to answer them. This is what Jesus does to rock their world. And of course, you now when you hear a passage like this, you must be filled with many questions. You say, okay, what then is the Christian's obligation before the state? You know, if God is the ultimate authority, should I be obeying government's rule by men? Good questions, and I believe there are a lot of good passages that answer that very directly. In light of Christ's rule and his exalted reign over his people, you can look and write this down. Look at Romans 13, 1 to 7. Go and write down and look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6. Look at 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. It will give you a good picture of what this balance looks like. That when you understand the principle of God's reign over your life, it will help to inform how you think about dealing with every other area. James Edwards gives a very helpful summary here where he says, one cannot consider political and civic duties apart from faith, but only as an expression of the prior and ultimate claims of God. Again, this truth blow that Jesus gives here in Mark has very far-reaching implications. You see, if we bear the image and inscription of God, what does he then require of us? That's the question that a passage like this asks us. 
Understand, it's a very important answer that you need to give. Our call is to render to God what is God's. And what is God's? Everything. Everything. And so it calls us to such a high standard. It calls us to a way of life that may see us very much rendering certain things to Caesar, but realizing that God calls us to even do so much more. And so that might look like you saying, sure, pay taxes, but you might have to pay some more because God wants you to do that. It, again, Christianity brings us to a point where you can't just say, well, at least I rendered here. Because God is asking you to render to him. And his standards are high. It means that in every area of your life, God stands in divine authority. And he has the right to say, mine. That business, mine. How you think about recreation? Mine. How you think about relationships? Mine. How you think about work? Mine. He has all right to say that. He requires everything of you. And so God made that declaration very clear in the Old Testament through the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 12, when he said, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with some, no, all your heart and with all your soul. And Jesus is going to reiterate that command in Mark, in the same chapter that we're looking on, when he answers, hey, what's the greatest commandment? You guys remember what Jesus says? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus elaborates even more what this rendering to God looks like. It looks like rendering all of your life. But here's the thing. Let's admit something. You see, if all of this by itself is what we are supposed to do, this is not particularly any good news. You see, because if this is true regarding what it looks like to render to God what is His, you see, you and I, we come very short on the payment. You see, if all of humanity which bears his image is required to relinquish our own domain and control over all the spheres of our lives, we are going to be found wanting. Every fiber of our natural being wants to have a similar inscription on Caesar's coin. What we want on our inscription is the divine Sean. The divine insert your name. If we are honest, we want to direct the very courses of our own life in the ways that show honor to us and our own accomplishment. And this is what the Bible calls sin. The sin which will separate us from the one and only divine being. But you see, here is the good news. You see, while you and I fail to render to God what is God, Jesus lived a life with the inscription... Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, the round he won with his opponents in Mark 12 was just a precursor of what the ultimate battle that he's going to face with sin and death would be like. You see, he lived the perfect life 
of God's image on earth. He rendered all of his life to God and did that as payment for all of those who would believe. You see, that is the good news, saints, because his resurrection proved that the payment was sufficient. And today, if you trust in Christ, you can finally render to God an acceptable, acceptable payment. And not so much a payment, well, acceptable sacrifice, your reasonable act of worship, because in faith, Jesus has already done the payment. And so you can be able to say along with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so this morning, saints, this is what Jesus wants to remind us about. By faith, render to God what is God's. Render to him your mind as you daily renew it through the word. Render to him your body. He surely cares about how you eat, how you rest your body, how you sleep, who you sleep with, what you wear, and so much more. Render to him your relationships. He does care about how you interact with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, strangers, and yes, even opposers. Render to him the work of your hands. It matters to him what you study and why you study it. What your intentions are. He has intentions for things wherever you serve as you take certain jobs. Render to him your social life, how you spend your time, how you wind down, how you relax, what you decide you're going to post on Instagram or not. Render everything to him. In every day, all the seemingly mundane tasks, you need to be intentional in how you showcase the fact that God is the one that I hold all obligation to. You see, in conclusion, in verse 17, ends appropriately the phrase, and they marveled at him. This is not the first time or the last time people will marvel at the words or deeds of Jesus. Marvel at Jesus, indeed. Marvel at him, the wisdom of God. The one who paid our obligation to the Father. And again, what good news that is for us saints. That Jesus is our wisdom. Because as I said earlier, we are going to face scenarios. We are going to face these gotcha questions and these hard realities that seek to trap us and confound us. But recognize that we know that the wise one has already confounded his opponents. Life is going to bring a myriad of conundrums. And the world is going to come with many questions, some genuine and some otherwise. But regardless, the wise one is your Lord and has placed his spirit in you and has promised that if you lack wisdom, he will generously to all without finding fault, he will give. Saints, Christ has given us all we need for life and godliness. 
He will give you all the resources you need to deal with every part of your life. As you render your marriages, your work life, your relationships, your habits, your bodies, your emotions, and more to God. Be in awe and let us marvel at the one who will indeed help us to render to God what is God's. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Sean Taylor, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.